Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Yellow Line. I'm your host, LJ, and today we are going to be talking about the tragic tale of a girl that lived very close by to me. Her name was Teresa DeKaiser, and this story hits extremely close to home for me. I don't know Teresa personally, but her story has touched the lives of many. I wanted to include in this episode an extra layer of me. Teresa was an artist, and if you don't already know, so am I. I love painting, I love art, and I thought that one of the ways that I can really showcase and really help in this community is by branching true crime and painting or art together. I think that these stories can get very dark and very sometimes hard to listen to, but with art, it can help heal. It can give you peace. And throughout this episode, I'm going to be intersplicing some video of me painting in Teresa's memory. If you're listening to this on a podcast streaming site, you might want to consider heading over to youtube.com slash online so you can catch the video version of this podcast. Otherwise, let's get started. Teresa DeKaiser was 22 years old at the time of her murder. Teresa resided in East Point, Michigan, before her and her family moved to St. Clair Shores. There, she was one of eight children. <laughs> there were eight other children in her family. Um, it was her mom, her dad, and she was the fifth of eight. So Teresa, she was kind of like into you know, the party scene a little bit. Um, she wasn't a hardcore addict by any means. She never asked for money or any sort of anything like that. She just, she was kind of influenced by her boyfriend. Her boyfriend's name was Scott Wobe, and Scott was heavily into the party scene, and he had had previous uh, run-ins with the law with drug-related incidents, so he might not have been the best influence. Uh, he was also quite older than her. However, she was wonderful. I know a lot of people that knew her personally. She was artistic. She wrote poetry. She painted. She created her own jewelry. And she, you know, was loved by many. She never did anything to disappoint her family. And, you know, she loved them. Her Two of her best friends were her sisters. So let's get into the timeline of events of Teresa going missing and later being discovered. So on June 15th, 2014, there was a domestic assault that occurred on Teresa. This was called into the Warren Police Department by one of the neighbors, they called 911, because Teresa, she was kind of just chilling in Scott's car and he was kind of in this drunken fueled rage. I guess he was drinking Jack Daniels and he was trying to get her to come out of the car and she didn't want to, so he started pulling at her shirt and like, I guess, pulling her out of the car and she like put up her fist to try to like stop him and he punched her in the face. The neighbors came like running out of their houses to try to help Teresa and he hijacked it out of there. He was 
like hot out of hell. When the police came, they took her statement, they took some pictures of her while she was there, and she had a like slash or like a red mark on her neck, probably from like the shirt rubbing against it. And she had a cut under her right eye. So the police told her that she needed to file a police report. She told them that she would go file the police report the next morning. You know, the cops left the scene and Teresa, about six hours later, decided she needed to go to the gas station and pick up a pack of cigarettes. So she went to the gas station and per Scott, later his account of events, he says that he picked up Teresa from that gas station and they had a conversation, they talked about what had happened and they had later made up. And according to police records, they were able to find that she had made a phone call at 10.23 p.m. That was the last phone call on her call record from that night. So then the next morning on June 16th, per Scott's account that we got later on, he claims that he dropped Teresa off down in Warren. It was off of the roads of Nine Mile and Van Dyke and he dropped her off per her request. She asked him to drop her off there. And he claimed this happened at 6 a.m. And I wanted to point out that at 8.27 a.m. there was a ping on Teresa's phone and it was saying that she was roughly at eight mile and Grossbeck, so maybe like a couple miles down the street from that area. So right on the border of Detroit and Warren. I couldn't really find any sort of account of what occurred uh, either by the family's account, by Scott's account, or any other account for the next 24 to 72 hours. I did find out though, in the state of Michigan, you cannot report someone missing until they are gone for at least 24, if not 72 hours. So the family declared Teresa missing as of the 19th of June at around 8.30 p.m. and they reported it to the Warren Police Department. On June 20th, 2014, the Warren Police Department assigned Detective Greg Bouton to the case. And his first attempts in finding Teresa included calling a lot of the local hospitals to just kind of see if there was maybe a Jane Doe or maybe she herself had been found. And he also called a bunch of his police contacts, but none of these led anywhere. There was no positive identifications of her anywhere and there were no leads. So after all of this was deemed unsuccessful, he decided that the best bet would be to publicly announce that Teresa was missing, which is what he did the next day. His choice in doing this was simply to generate leads. He had kind of not a lot to go off of. He had the DeKaiser family start, you know, a search party. They started hanging up missing signs and posters throughout the Warren and Detroit area. They also started checking in on places that she would visit frequently. Now, before we get into further timeline, I just wanted to go over a few negative tips that they got. They got a few tips that didn't really lead anywhere, but these were parts of the investigation overall. So the first one was on June 21st, and there was a tip that said that Teresa had checked into a hotel that was located in Roseville, Michigan called the Relax Inn. When the Warren police went to check that place out, they spoke to a maintenance man and he had provided like an account of seeing her, but once they kind of investigated the scene, they got no conclusive evidence from that, so they had to move on. Then on June 23rd, there was a tip that Teresa may have visited a medical marijuana facility. As she was a medical marijuana user, she had a prescription for her depression and anxiety, and so there had been a tip from two of the employees there saying that they had seen her on June 18th. 
Unfortunately, this also didn't lead to any positive results or any sort of finding. Additionally, on July 3rd, the police had received a tip that they had maybe somebody had seen her right where I had said, right around McNichols, Eight Mile, uh, Woodward, Van Dyke area. And so the police decided to span out and all kind of spread across the area of Detroit and try to find Teresa. And again, this provided them with no conclusive results and no evidence. The police received numerous tips and all of these kind of led nowhere. There was at least a dozen sightings that people had seen Teresa, but they all turned out to be people that just had a striking resemblance to her. So going back a little bit, on June 23rd, 2014, Scott was first interviewed by the police officers of Warren. They decided they wanted to find out where he was on June 15th and June 16th. So this is when he provided his detailed account of those nights. And this is also when he alleged that he had dropped off Teresa in Warren. The DeKaiser family started to fear for the worst because there was a concert that Teresa wouldn't have missed for the world. It was called the Electric Forest Music Festival, which happens in Detroit, Michigan. And that was to occur on June 26th. She had pre-bought tickets to this. She was looking forward to this. This was going to be her third or fourth year going. And her mom had her ticket and she never came back for it and she didn't attend. But her boyfriend, Scott, did attend and apparently he was in high spirits and enjoying himself the entire time. On July 2nd, 2014, the Warren Police Department decided to come back and question Scott Wobe a second time because his, you know, account of events were starting to seem not the most reliable as there was no evidence of her showing up there. So they came to him for more questions and they ended up actually picking him up for an unrelated reason because he had broken his probation. By getting in that assault with his girlfriend, Teresa, he had broke his probation as he was not supposed to get in any sort of violence or any sort of you know, issues with the law. When they came to question him, they also had a search warrant for his, his house and they had found uh, drugs on his property. They found, they found like a bunch of stuff at his house basically. So he was taken into custody. Additionally, while they were searching the premises, one of the officers allegedly had written that they had seen what appeared to be drag marks. And this would suggest that there was somebody on the premises, like these drag marks were found like in the woodsy area right around his house. And it would suggest that somebody may have been incapacitated and moved. Unfortunately for police, that wasn't enough to arrest him for the Teresa charge, but as I said, there was enough illegal drugs in his possession that was able to be used to take him off to jail. <laughs> then on July 17th, the family's starting to get desperate. It's been a whole month now, and so the family had hired a private investigator on the case, and that private investigator met up with the detective, Detective Bhutan, and they threw the tips that they had had and what the status of the investigation was. And they just kind of caught each other up on what they'd been able to find. From here, things started to run a bit dry. They really had no leads. There was not a lot of information to go off of. All of the leads kept coming up negative and the tips started to, you know, run dry as well. However, on September 4th, there was an article that was released called Where is Teresa? 
and this article kind of just outlined the family's grief. That led to two tips about the about the cops needing to check out this storage facility in Plymouth. So on September 18th, the Westland, Warren, Plymouth, and state cops all got together to investigate this eight by six ATV type trailer. This trailer was located in Travel Trailer Storage in Plymouth, Michigan. Inside the trailer, they found a 55 gallon drum. This drum was bolted to the ground and it appeared that there was a lot of things inside this drum. They had like this special x-ray machine that they could kind of see from the outside what was in it and it looked like it was held together with plastic sheeting and duct tape. There was about six to eight inches of concrete and then over that was sand and it was all supposedly hiding a body of a female in the fetal position. So later that day, the barrel was sent over to the Wayne County Medical Examiner's office. Somebody from the storage facility had stated that the trailer had been rented and the storage facility had been rented days prior to Teresa's disappearance. It was set up by a third party. Scott Wobb was not the person who had rented the facility for the storage. The next day, on September 19th, 2014, it was sadly confirmed by police officers that due to the matching clothing, jewelry, and tattoo the victim had, it matched Teresa's. The body found in the barrel was that of Teresa's. As I had previously mentioned, the police had come to her residence prior to her disappearance that night. and. When they took police photographs of her, you know, cut on her neck and her cut under her eye, she was wearing the same clothing then that this body was wearing. Additionally, the medical examiner's office was able to confirm after completing a forensic dental exam that this was in fact Teresa. Her body had been extremely decomposed. It was undeterminable what the cause of death was due to how decomposed she was. She suffered three fractures to three consecutive ribs on the right side of her body. And this was probably either the attack that killed her or an attack that occurred right before she was dead because there she was hemorrhaging. Before she died, there was a plastic bag that was put over her head and tied around her neck before she was encased in concrete. Teresa's manner of death was identified as a homicide. Uh, this was due to the special circumstances surrounding how she was found. From here, the main suspect becomes a manhunt for Scott Wobe. Scott Wobe was 37 years old at this time, so 15 years older than her. He becomes arranged on three different counts. One is for murder in the first degree, the next is for disinterment of a body, and the last is kidnapping. Scott was held without bond. He had already broken his probation, so he, you know, was already in jail for that. And he had, he'd also led the police down like a 90 day manhunt for Teresa that like, for nothing. Like she probably was there. Oh, it hurts me to even think about it, but the entire time. In October of 2014, Scott's hearings kind of was halted for a moment as he went under some mental health evaluations. 
He was put on suicide watch since he had been placed behind bars because he had a history of drug use. And additionally, once Teresa's body was discovered, he had allegedly attempted suicide while he was behind bars. So because of these two different reasons, the courts thought it was best to, you know, give him a competency hearing prior to making him stand trial just to just to ensure that he was competent to stand trial. This evaluation process took a while because it wasn't until January 21st, 2015 that he was deemed mentally fit to stand trial. So in February of 2015, the preliminary hearings begin and there's a couple different witness testimonies that I wanted to bring up. The first one was for Christopher Gula and Christopher Gula had testified that Scott came to his home on or about the 16th, 15th uh, of June, and he came hauling a padlocked trailer. Christopher stated that a neighbor and him took off the trailer and took it over to another friend named Jackie Rothfuss house. Jackie Rothfuss testified that Scott had come to her house two days later and he changed all the locks on the trailer. Jackie also testified that she had asked him what's in the trailer, but he never really gave a solid response or like answered the question. Three days later, Christopher returned to retrieve the trailer from his friend Jackie's house and he took it to the Plymouth Township self-storage complex. And from there, he said that Scott had given him the initial $65 that was required to set up a storage of this trailer at the Plymouth storage facility. And he also later reimbursed Christopher for all of the storage related costs by writing a check. Additionally, on the storage agreement that was brought into like the court for like documentation, Scott's name, Scott Wobe's name, and his cell phone number were both on the contract listed as a secondary point of contact. So he might not have been like the main person that owned this technically, but come on, like he was the one who was paying for it and like had it and like all of that kind of stuff. Another friend that testified was Andrew Oland. And Andrew Oland was a friend of Teresa's. They were co-workers at Tim Hortons and friends. On June 16th, Teresa had accidentally texted Andrew Oland a text that was intended to go to Scott and it was pretty threatening. It was like a message that she had meant to send after the assault. She was telling Andrew she had planned to speak to Scott again later that night, but Oland said he never heard back from Teresa after that night and that was the last he ever heard of her. As I previously stated, there were cell phone records that had reported that she had made a phone call on June 16th However, there is no proof that this phone call was actually made by Teresa, as Teresa's phone was never recovered. Police, however, did examine text messages between Scott and Teresa, and it appeared that Teresa had been considering taking some money from Scott in exchange for not going to the cops and not filing a police report on what had happened. Allegedly, he was going to be giving her about $1,000, and this was to go get some supplies for the uh, soon-to-be concert coming up that they were going to together, as well as maybe to pay some bills. Unfortunately, because there was no evidence of premeditation and there was no way to show that Scott had an intention to kill Teresa, 
the judge had to drop the kidnapping charges. There was just not enough evidence for that charge to stick. Then on May 21st, Scott Woeb decided to plead no contest to the murder, mutilization, and discernment of Teresa. So his sentencing started on June 30th, 2015, and around 7.51 a.m. was the first report that I saw that said, Scott Woeb is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Another note is that by pleading no contest, Scott faced a mandatory life sentence and he lost his automatic right to an appeal because he didn't go to trial. So as part of his punishment, he was also ordered by the judge to have no contact with the DeKaiser family, as well as he had to pay $9,450 to Teresa DeKaiser's mom for the cost of Teresa's funeral, for a grave, and for the private detective that they had hired. That $9,000 is simply not even close to enough. That's just like a drop in the bucket compared to the pain, the anguish, and the the horrendous murder of, of their daughter, of their sister, of their friend. I can't imagine the pain or agony that this family and these friends must be feeling from just how tragic this events turned out to be. One of Teresa's siblings said in a statement that she had mixed feelings regarding Scott uh, deciding to plead no contest. Leah stated that a part of me is relieved to have not had to sit there and go through all the details of the trial and to not have my mom have to hear what he did to his daughter. But another part of me is pissed because yet again, his cowardice has gotten him exactly what he wants. He doesn't have to sit there and listen to everything that he did. Though I never knew Teresa, her impact with me is, is strong. I heard about this case when it was happening. I heard the updates throughout and a part of her has never left my side. I truly feel connected to this story, though I never knew her, through her friends and through her memory. I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to be doing <laughs> a piece of art. I feel like I can almost, you know, feel it through them, feel the brush through them, and hopefully that helps somebody somewhere. She may be gone, but she'll never be forgotten. Please enjoy my art that I made for this video. I hope you like it. Please let me know if you did. If you liked this video, please don't forget to give it a like and comment down below and let me know what you thought of it. As always, if you haven't already, please don't forget to hit subscribe so you'll never miss another True Crime episode. And with all of that, I will see you guys <laughs> the next time we go behind the yellow line. Goodbye.